I was out in the hallway and the caterer came over to me. I just walked down and the caterer walked over to me and he said, we have your special kosher meal. I said, how did you know it was mine? Um, there's once a non-Jew asked his Jewish friend, he says, could you take me to your synagogue? I want to see how the Jews pray. He says, sure, come with me. Saturday morning, Sabbath morning services. So the Jewish friend takes his non-Jewish friend to the synagogue, Saturday morning, Sabbath services, and uh, the non-Jewish friend is asking what everything's about. So he, he, he says, what does that mean when everyone stands up and they, they, they step three steps backwards, and they step three steps forward, and then what does that mean? And the Jewish friend says, well, that's, that means that they're, they're, that's the standing prayer. And that's the main prayer of the, the Jewish service that we pray three times a day. And a little bit later, the non-Jewish friend asks his Jewish friend, he says, oh, what does that mean? They open that big curtain in the front and they open that ark. He says, well, that's where we keep the Torah scrolls and they're going to bring out the, the scrolls and they're going to read uh, publicly from the scrolls. Oh, that's what that means. Very good. Uh, after the Torah reading, uh, the rabbi got up to the podium. He says, what does that mean when the rabbi gets and stands up there? He says, well, that means the rabbi is going to say his sermon. And the rabbi took off his wristwatch. And he put the watch down on the podium in front of him before he began to speak. And the, the non-Jewish friend says to the Jewish friend, what does that mean when the rabbi takes off his watch before his sermon and he puts it down on the podium in front of him? And the Jewish friend looks at his non-Jewish friend and says, unfortunately, not a darn thing. <laughs> I'm going to do something a little, bit, a little bit different than what I normally do when I give a speech because basically you're insiders. You know exactly what I'm doing right now. Okay? So I wouldn't normally do this because it kills the magic, but between us, there doesn't have to be any magic. I'm not here to, there's no smoke and mirrors. I'm going to tell you exactly what I'm doing as I'm doing. It's sort of like uh, analyzing a joke, right? They say if you, uh, what is it? What's the saying? Analyzing a joke is like dissecting a frog. You understand it better, but it's dead. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm sort of killing the joke, I'm killing the magic, because I'm gonna analyze this and be transparent as I go. It's sort of like a magician who shows you what he's doing as he's going along, but that's what I wanna do. Okay, what, what have I done? What, I got up here, and I'm, I'm not a stand-up comic, but I wanted to go for several laughs. Um, why did I do it? I mean, we all know about opening with a joke. What, what, what's the deal? Okay, why am I doing this? The Talmud discusses there was a great sage, one of the scholars of the Babylonian academies. His name was Rava, and he was one of the masters of, of Talmudic law. And uh, he would, it, it, the Talmud says that he would always begin his lecture with a humorous remark. And then after the humorous remark, then he would begin to teach the actual uh, content of the lecture. So he wasn't like a guy who gets up and gives a toast at a wedding, right, where nobody wants to really be listening to a speech. They want to be eating. And so you use jokes to keep them quiet so they don't start talking and you lose control of the crowd. He had control of the crowd. He was the master. They were the students. They came voluntarily. They were adults. They wanted to be there listening to the master teach. So why is he opening with a joke? So let me explain. There's a spirituality 
behind speaking. Speaking is spiritual. What do I mean by that? The world is composed of four kingdoms. The physical world is composed of four kingdoms. You have the inanimate, you have the vegetative, you have the animal, and you have the human. Every one of those levels has a body and has a soul. Matter and energy. The inanimate kingdom is distinguished by the fact that it exists. It takes up physical space. So the soul of an inanimate object is the energy which brings its matter into being. Right? The fact that it is there, it is physically present. But that's about it. Then you have vegetation. Vegetation doesn't just take up physical space. It also has life. It doesn't just exist, it lives. It has life. And the soul of vegetation is the fact that it can grow. But that's about it. It can't uproot itself and move to another spot. It can't relocate. The animal physically exists, and it grows, and it has another dimension. It can move around. It has volition. It can go where its desire leads it to. The fourth category is human. And in the tradition of our rabbis, that category is called midaber. Midaber means speaker. What can the human do that the inanimate and the vegetative and the animal cannot do? The human being can speak. Now you're going to say animals speak. Speech doesn't just mean making sounds. It doesn't even just mean symbols. Speech means the capacity to share my inner world with you. Speech doesn't just mean that I can motion to, hey guys, that's where the food is. Speech means that I can convey abstraction. I can tell you about something you've never seen. In fact, I can tell you about something I've never seen. Abstraction means, even if it doesn't exist yet in the physical universe, if I can conceive of it, then I can communicate it. That's spiritual. Something does not exist in the phenomenological universe, not in this physical world, and yet, if I can dream of it, I can convey it to you. I can take it from my inner world and share it with you, and it becomes part of your inner world. That's what real speech is, and that's spiritual. It defies or transcends the concrete. It is the sharing of the abstract. Now, Part and parcel of this dynamic is that there's the speaker and there's the listener. Now, we might take turns. Sometimes I'm the speaker and you're the listener and vice versa. But when I'm the speaker and I'm sharing with you an idea, a vision, what is the occupational hazard of every speaker? The occupational hazard is this. If I don't see something that you can't yet see, then I shouldn't be the one speaking. Why am I talking? If we all see it, we all know about it, then I shouldn't be up here. So I've got to be the expert, and I've got to know something you don't know. So that's first. But conversely, if I'm the guy who's talking about something nobody knows about, that makes me a terrific bore. I'm going to talk about something you don't know about, you have no frame of reference for, you have no context, and in fact, the greater, the loftier, the more rarefied my insight is, the more alienating it is to you for me to talk about it. 
So that's the occupational hazard. How do we overcome that? You know, there was a guy who was uh, on a hot air balloon trip, and he got lost. The wind came, and he got blown off course. He didn't know where he was. So he was desperately trying to figure out his location, and he, he, he was flying over a field, a big open field, and he saw a fellow standing down in the field, and he screamed down below. He says, you there, can you help me? The guy down below in, in the field says, yes, I can help you, what do you need? And the guy in the hot air balloon says, can you tell me, I'm lost, can you tell me, where am I? The guy standing down on the ground says, you're in a hot air balloon. The guy in the hot air balloon says, yes, yes, I know. But where's my location in relation to Earth? The guy down below says, you're about 100 meters off the ground. <laughs> the guy says, yes, I know. I'm talking location. Like, where am I located in the world? So the guy down below says, you are... 38 degrees north, 12 degrees east longitude. The guy in the hot air balloon says, Sir, may I ask you one more question? The guy below says, Yeah. The guy above says, Are you a rabbi? The guy below says, Yeah, I am. By trade, I am. I am a, I am a rabbi. How do you know I'm a rabbi? And the guy in the hot air balloon says, because from the moment I met you, every single thing you've told me has been 100% true and totally irrelevant to my situation. <laughs> By the way, I said it as rabbi, but you could plug in any expert, right? That's the occupational hazard of the expert. I know something you don't know, that's why I'm up here talking, but... What's going to happen is I'm going to speak on a level, I'm going to speak over your head, it's not going to resonate, and the more I talk, the more alienated you become, the more apparent it becomes that we're in two different worlds. So what's the quickest, easiest way for us to take a step into common ground and share a universe? The quickest, easiest way is a joke. When you tell a joke and everyone laughs, we're all in on the joke, right? That's how we say it in, in, in English, right? You're in on the joke. When we both laugh at the same thing, that means we both share, at least in some limited fashion, a common outlook on reality. So you know like a Venn diagram with the two circles? So here's the circle of the speaker. Here's the circle of the audience. Here's his expertise which is his area of, his or her area of, of mastery, then here's the audience who doesn't yet have mastery in that, in that area. The overlapping of the two circles is what we both agree is funny. So when I open with a joke, it's not to loosen you up, it's not to prove to you that I'm a nice guy, I'm a cool guy, okay, it's all right, put you at ease. The joke is instantly to draw those two circles into a, an overlap, even the tiniest bit of overlap. And once there's overlap, there's some common ground, I can start to pull you into my world. And that's spiritual. I'm going to get you to see what I see, even if you've never seen it yet before in your life. But I had to start with the joke. Okay. 
What's another tool that we use? And it works on a very similar principle. Or the need for it arises from the same place. That occupational hazard of the master or the expert. By the way, you know the, uh, why the scarecrow won a Nobel Prize? He was outstanding in his field. <laughs> like, okay, that's a pun. I took a risk. I set a pun in an audience that's not all first lang- first uh, English as first language, but I figured, you know, it's Europe, you know, you guys, you're sophisticated like that, I can do it. Okay. Um, the expert is trying to communicate something, all right. So humor is, is the first way that we show that there's an overlap of realities. What, what's the next thing? Uh, parable, metaphor. Metaphor is very powerful. Metaphor is funny. Because metaphor, at first glance, metaphor is obfuscating. It's confusing. I really want to talk about A, but instead I'm symbolically talking about B, but that's not my real point. I really want to bring you back to A. What's with the bait and switch? If you need to explain A, explain A. Ah, but that's our problem. That's, that's the occupational hazard. A is an unfamiliar concept to you. So if I simply just get more and more meticulous and more analytical and more articulate in explaining this concept that's unfamiliar to you, that's not making you more familiar with the concept. That's emphasizing, that's underlining your unfamiliarity. So what do I do? I have to have the grace to say, you know what, I'm putting A aside right now. Putting it aside. I'm instead, I'm going to talk about B. B is something pedestrian, something mundane, something everyday, something relatable. And we're going to talk about that. Then I'm going to analyze some pertinent dynamic within B. And I'm, then, I'm going to, then I'm going to take a U-turn. A parable is change the subject and then take a U-turn. And I'm going to bring you back to A. And I'm going to use the familiar to build a bridge back to the unfamiliar. The higher, the loftier your idea is, the newer it is, the more of a visionary concept it is, the more you need parable. The newer your idea, the more radical your idea is, the less it helps to just keep pounding on the idea, and the more important it is to allow yourself to go to the parable and then switch back to the first idea. There's a a midrash of our sages that says a king once lost a priceless gem and was able to discover it again with a candle worth a penny. That's a parable for parables. The information that I'm really trying to talk about is the priceless gem. I locate it, or allow you to locate it, with a candle that's worth a penny. Okay, so where do our metaphors come from? How do you come up with a good metaphor? There was a great speaker, one of the great preachers in Jewish tradition. He was known as the preacher of Dubna. He was from a town in uh, Lithuania called Dubna. He was the preacher of Dubna. And he was once asked by another uh, colleague, how do you have a metaphor for everything? How do you have the right analogy, the right parable for every concept? So he answered... For that, I have a metaphor. 
<laughs> he says, there was once a squire who sent his son to military school. So the son went to military school for two years. And he learned how to archery, how to shoot arrows. He was coming back from military school after two years. And on his way, he passed by a farmhouse. And he saw a peasant boy who was shooting arrows. And he noticed in the side of the barn, every single arrow was dead smack in the center of a bullseye. There were painted bullseyes with white paint on the side of the barn. Every arrow was dead smack in the center of the bullseye. So this young man just spent two, uh, two years in military school. He couldn't shoot that well. He asked the peasant boy, he says, how do you do it? How do you hit bullseye every time? So the peasant says, oh, no, you don't, under you don't understand. I don't paint the bullseye and then shoot the arrow and hit the mark. I shoot the arrow, it hits wherever it hits. Then I come along with paint and I circle it and put the bullseye. What does this mean? When, when we need a metaphor, we already have the metaphor. We already heard the metaphor. Everything you hear, every story, every idea, everything is a metaphor for something. For what? I don't know yet. I'll find out. That's why part of speech writing is, the better part of speech writing, I believe, is just keeping that file. If you have a good memory, you do it mentally. If you need to write notes, write notes. But it's keeping that file, keeping that portfolio of potential metaphors. This was, a, this, was, this was an illustration of a case where I heard it and I didn't know it was a metaphor. And then I found out later when I thought about it, it was a metaphor. Somebody told me the way that it works, the space station, so they, they need tools up there sometimes. So a guy, uh, an astronaut, needed a wrench. Okay. So he didn't have the wrench. They needed to send a wrench. Now, in the old days, meaning even a few years ago, you had to wait a long time before there's another mission going up to the space station to bring up the wrench. Nowadays, what do they do? They do a 3D scan of the wrench down in Mission Control in Houston or wherever it is. Okay, they scan the wrench and then they email it. So the wrench becomes a bunch of zeros and ones. It becomes a digital file and they email it. Just like, you know, if I were to email you and we're in the same room, my email goes to space and then comes back down to you. This is even faster than that because you send the email to space and it stays there at the space station. So they just email him the file, the 3D scan of the wrench, and then he gets the email, and he presses print, and the 3D printer prints the wrench, and now he has the wrench that he needs up there in the space station. Okay, well, watch what happens. If I wanted, let's say I'm a real stickler, I have an idea, and it's a really good idea, it's an important idea, and it's so important that I refuse to budge from it, I'm gonna talk about it and talk about it and talk about it and talk about it, even though it's alienating you because you don't relate to it. That's like me saying, I want my wrench to remain a wrench. Yeah, but if your wrench remains a wrench, you can't get it to the guy in the space station. But if you allow the wrench to become a non-wrench, you allow it to become zeros and ones, you allow it to become that attachment, that file that's sent by email, then at the other end eventually becomes a wrench again. So if I allow myself, and a lot of it's about letting go, a lot of effective communication is about relinquishing control. I know what I want to say, but if I force it, you're not going to hear it. So I let go of what I really want to talk about. I move to something more familiar, and then I let go, and now you get the idea that I wanted to tell you all along. It's like getting you the wrench, 
by allowing the wrench to be a non-wrench in the interim phase. Okay. The other tool, I want to talk about three main, phase, uh, three main tools. Humor, parable, and the third thing is storytelling. What's storytelling? Again, I have something abstract, something spiritual, right? It doesn't exist in the physical world, and I need to tell you about it. It's my inner world, but I want to make it part of your inner world. How do I do that? How do I convey that? Okay, so we talked about humor. It gives our worlds an overlap. We talked about parable, which is allowing the wrench to be a non-wrench in order to become a wrench again at the end. Um, Another way is storytelling. What does storytelling do? The word for storytelling, and in the Talmud they use storytelling. Sometimes in the middle middle of a legal discussion, it'll say the word maiseh. Maisa means story, but literally it means action. Like, you know, in Hollywood, action. By the way, cinematically speaking, a good film is a film that is just as good with the sound off. You know that? I believe it was Godard who said that. That if you need dialogue to move the story, that's not a film. Film is a visual medium. Right? So, Maisa. Maisa means action. In other words, I have an idea. What does my idea look like in action? Idea is abstract. Action is concrete. Stories concretize the abstract. Again, I want to tell you about something you haven't seen. Something that I've only seen in my, in my mind's eye, which is the most electrifying thing in the world. That ability to talk about which doesn't yet exist. By the way, in the 20th century, what's probably the most effective famous, well-known, celebrated speech, at least in the English language. I have a dream, right? Okay, and forget about the context, the political context and the social context. Just as far as effective oratory, I see something that doesn't yet exist. I'm going to get you to see it, and then it will exist. So again, we're talking about moving from the abstract to the concrete. Stories concretize the abstract. A story means, what does this idea look like when it's played out in real lives? There was a rabbi who once, uh, he spent five years, literally five years, day and night, sleepless nights. He was fundraising, capital campaign. He was putting up a new uh, building and uh, with fundraising and with getting permits and dealing with the contractors and the whole thing. And the last thing, uh, when they finally put up the building, they were going to have the ribbon cutting ceremony. And the, the papers were coming, and the big donors were coming. And the, the ribbon-cutting ceremony was ready, and they had uh, the last thing the contractors did. They paved the parking lot, and there was fresh, wet cement in the parking lot. And a couple of little boys came out from Hebrew school, and they played tag, and they were chasing each other. And one little boy chased the other little boy through the wet cement and tracked it all up moments before the ribbon-cutting ceremony. And the rabbi, five years, remember, sleepless nights, he's, his whole life was about putting together this building and celebrating this moment. And the little boy just ran through the wet cement. It was more than he could bear, and, and he lost it. And he started screaming at these kids. He was screaming at them. And at the moment he was screaming at them, one of the fathers, one of the little boy's fathers, pulled up for carpool. And he said, Rabbi, Rabbi, you're screaming at the children. Didn't you teach us that one who becomes angry is 
as one who worships idols? The rabbi says, yes, that's true. But that was in the abstract. This is in the concrete. (laughs) Remember the power of the story. It makes it concrete. It takes the abstract and makes it concrete. Okay? Um, That's why, for instance, anecdotes are more powerful than statistics. Personalize it. Tell a story. Human interest. Who did this happen to? Tell a story. Always a story. The Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov was the founder of the Hasidic movement. And um, they say that when there was a drought and the people needed rain, they would come to him and he would lead them to the forest. And in the midst of the forest, he would teach them a Torah teaching. And then he would sing a meditative melody, and then it would rain. So many generations after the Baal Shem Tov, there was a, uh, a Hasidic master, a rabbi, named Reb Yisroel of Ruzhin. The Ruziner, they called him, the Ruziner Tzadik. And his disciples came to him and they said, Master, there's a, a drought, we need it to rain. So the Ruziner Tzadik says like this, in the times of the Baal Shem Tov, many generations ago, when they needed rain, they would go to the forest, they would stand by this particular tree. And he would share a Torah teaching, and he would sing a meditative melody, and in the merit of the teaching and the song, it would rain. He says... In the next generation, the generation of his successor and disciple, the Magid of Mezrich, when they needed water, when they needed rain, they would go to the forest and the Magid would say, I don't know the teaching. I don't know the teaching, but I know the melody. And he would sing the melody and it would rain. The Ruzhina then said, I don't know the teaching. And I don't know the melody, but I know the story that that's what they did. And in the merit of me telling the story, it should rain. Not everything needs to be explained. To the contrary, less explaining, more narrative, Make it personal, make it human, make it relevant. And this isn't just about storytelling, this is in general, this is overarching. Specific is universal, personal is global. That's how it works. When you speak grandiose ideas, You've said nothing. You said anybody can get up and talk big. It's much more difficult to talk small. In the days of uh, before the revolution in 1917 in Russia, they used to have preachers, not religious preachers, but uh, indoctrinators from the from the revolution would go around and they would speak about communism in the in the small towns. 
So this indoctrinator comes and he gives a speech about communism. And uh, he wants to make sure his audience follows the, the, the lecture, the theme. So there's a farmer, a little farmer there. He says to him, I just want to see if you understand what I'm talking about here, how it works. He says, what would you do, comrade, what would you do if you had two cows? So the little farmer says, two cows? I know how it works. I know what I would do. I would keep one cow and I would give one cow to the party. And the lecturer says, that's, that's great, that's correct. Okay, let's keep going. What would you do if you had two goats? The farmer says, two goats. I know what I would do. I would keep one goat and I would give one goat to the party. The lecturer says, that's correct, very good. All right, one more example. What if you had two chickens? What would you do with two chickens? And the farmer hesitates. And the lecturer says, comrade, go ahead, two chickens. And the farmer's hesitating. And the lecturer says, what would you do with two chickens? And the farmer says, uh, I'm not sure. The lecturer says, I don't understand, comrade. Two cows and you're going to give one cow away. Two goats, you're going to give one goat away. Two little chickens and now you're hesitating? Why all of a sudden you're hesitating? The farmer says, because I really have two chickens. <laughs> If we have jokes, parables, stories, and aphorism as our tools, in our toolkit, and that expository, exposition, meaning actually describing ideas, is, is another category. So in one category we have not actually saying what we're trying to say in order to say it better than actually saying it, which is jokes, parables, stories, aphorism, and then the other category is saying it on the nose, the exposition part. You tell me what's, what's a healthy ratio. My personal experience, as both one who listens to speeches and one who gives them, about 95% are my jokes, stories, aphorisms, parables, and about 5% expository. Remember, just the fact that I have this piece of wood up here is already alienating. This podium up here. The word lecture itself is intimidating. How do we use the word, an even more intimidating word, preaching. Preaching, don't preach to me. It implies a vertical relationship, right? It implies this gap, talking down to me. Lecture too, a lecture is you're lecturing to me. You know, there was this guy who was coming back from the pub at three in the morning. Police officer stopped and said, hey buddy, where do you think you're going right now? He says, I'm on my way to the lecture. Officer says, I don't know of any lectures going on at three in the morning. Drunk fellow says, believe me, follow me home. I'm going to open the door. When my wife answers it, it's going to be a lecture. <laughs> Lecturing, preaching, that's all talking down. That's alienating. That emphasizes the discrepancy, the power discrepancy between the speaker and the listener. I don't want that. I don't want that. I want to emphasize our common ground. 
So here's, here's, here's the point. We want to convey something that is bigger than all of us, something that's otherworldly, something that's beyond. That's the ultimate in communication. That's the spiritual power, the higher power that's behind every message. And in order to do that, we have to be very humble. We have to be willing to keep it small. Jokes, stories, parables, keep it human, keep it real, keep it relevant. And then something magical happens. Although, like I said, I'm not up here to do magic. I already showed you how all the tricks work, so I wouldn't call it magic. If it's not too corny, I would call it a miracle. And that is, there's a connection of two inner worlds. Something that I've seen suddenly becomes something that you can see. That, that's a gift. That's a gift to be able to provide that. So, uh, I just want to... Uh, I, I, I don't have... Even though I opened with a joke about the rabbi over-speaking his time limit, <laughs> I'll allow that to remain a joke. <laughs> And in the merit that I told the story, you know, it should be as if I actually went over my time limit. But I just want to express a prayer that all of us should be vessels for that which is far greater than all of us. And we should touch the lives of other human beings. Thank you.